The Torah portion today is uh, super exciting, what we just read. <clears throat> a song uh, that they sang as they came out of the uh, Red Sea incident to give glory to God for that great deliverance. <clears throat> it ends with, um, and the Lord shall reign forever and ever. It's the first time that God is mentioned in the scriptures as being a king. He's the sovereign king of the universe and of the world we live in. And the Lord shall reign forever and ever. The ruling, reigning king. So this concept of the kingdom of God, of God being a king, is the number one central theme throughout the Torah, the Tanakh, even the apostolic scriptures. In fact, it leads us into the series that I've been teaching on for the last couple of weeks. This is the kingdom of God series. And I'm in series number three, and I've entitled this, the people's kingdom, the people's kingdom. Part of the mystery of the kingdom of God is that it is a spiritual kingdom and that it's not of this world. To be sure, it is real. It has a king, it has a realm, a law, authority, power, and glory. But because it is spiritual, most people cannot see it because they don't know what to look for. But once you know what to look for, you can see it in our world today. And if you choose to enter it, you will not only experience its wonders, you will also come to possess its authority, its power, and its glory. Why? Because the kingdom of God belongs to the people of the king. We are the recipients of the kingdom, the power, the glory, and the authority of our God. So I'm going to develop this theme as we go forward in this uh, kingdom series. Last week, we saw that God would give his kingdom to a human being in Daniel chapter 7, one like a son of man, a human being, right? ascends on the clouds into the heavenlies to receive a kingdom. Let me read that for you, just kind of recapping last week, or the week before, actually. Daniel 2.44. In the days of those kings, speaking of the kings of Rome, it's the final empire, the Roman Empire. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. And that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. This is the kingdom of God. This is the prophesied rule and reign of God coming to our world in the days of the kings of Rome. And it did. We discovered that the kingdom of God came nearly 2,000 years ago. It's amazing when you think about it. Daniel 7, 13 through 14. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not pass be destroyed. The Son of Man 
sends into heaven, receives the, receives the kingdom of God, the authority to rule and reign over everything. This was quite controversial that a human being would receive that. Now, we know who he was. Who is the Son of Man? None other than Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus claimed to be Daniel's Son of Man. And Jesus suffered. He died. He rose again on the third day, ascended on the clouds into heaven to receive this kingdom, just as Daniel prophesied. Up into the clouds, he ascends into the heavenlies and is presented with the authority to rule and reign over everything. He's given the scepter of his father. In fact, the apostle Paul, if you remember, says that in the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, Psalm 2 is now fulfilled. And it is. Jesus seated at the right hand of God with the scepter of God ruling and reigning over everything. And when did that take place? Nearly 2,000 years ago. He's ruling and reigning now. He's been ruling and reigning for 2,000 years. And you say, well, the world's still really jacked. And it is. But whoever said that he would accomplish the will of his father in like 24 hours or a weekend or a month, right? This is very, a very complicated uh, drama that's being played out, the whole drama of good and evil, of the redemption that's offered through the Son of God. And so he is ruling and reigning, and he is accomplishing his Father's will from heaven. We'll get more into that in just a moment. But Daniel goes on to reveal that the Son of Man gives the kingdom to a people. First he ascends, receives the kingdom, and then later he turns around and he gives it to a people. I want to read this. It's Daniel chapter 7, 23 through 27. Thus he said, the fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on earth, which will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth and tread it down and crush it. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings will arise. Another will arise after them, and he will be different from the previous ones and will subdue three kings. He will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the Highest One. And he will intend to make alterations in times and in law. And they will be given into his hand for a times, times, and half a time. But the court will sit for judgment and his dominion will be taken away, annihilated, and destroyed. Verse 27. Then the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions will serve and obey him. So this son of man who comes in the days of the kings begins his rule and reign. And over a period of time, he will take dominion over everything. And all the kingdoms of this world will become his. And he's going to turn around and give those kingdoms to his people. He's going to empower his people to rule and reign with him over the nations. Actually, over all creation even over the angels that fell. This is what he's going to do for us. 
This is an amazing uh, unfolding of events. You know, where are we in the scheme of things, right? We'll get down to that in a moment. This rule and reign of Messiah will reach its fullness when he returns. This is when the consummation takes place. Revelation 11, 15 through 19 also describes what Daniel gave us much earlier. So in Revelation chapter 11, verses 15 through 19, it says, Then the seventh angel sounded, sounded his trumpet, his shofar. The seventh angel, the seventh trumpet, the final trumpet. This ushers in the return of Messiah when the trumpet of God is blown and we are caught up into the air to meet the Lord as he descends with those who have fallen asleep with him to come into the glorious phase of his kingdom. The seventh angel sounded. There were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever, echoing what was said in Moses' day when God revealed himself as a king. So it comes to fruition, of course, in the return of Messiah. This is the glorious phase of the kingdom. Everything becomes his. I had a friend of mine I worked with, and back in the day, he was doing a lot better than I was. I was younger, but uh, he was a pretty uh, rowdy, rough, kind of worldly guy, and, and he had quite a bit in, in investments. He had been investing for quite some time in the stock market, and he's building quite the portfolio. And he'd always come and tell me all the time what his portfolio was doing. You know, over and over. I don't know what it was about. He had to always come and show me his increases from time to time, you know, and, and kind of brag, brag on that. You know, I'm married. I've, I'm trying to raise a family. I don't got a lot of extra money. Most of my money's going into the uh, private school education that cost me an arm and a leg. I'm over it now. It was well worth the investment. My daughters appreciate it. So anyway, uh, he's always showing me all this money, you know, and uh, so one day he came up to me, he's kind of boasting and bragging, and I said, well, I'm glad you're doing well. I said, in fact, I'm praying that you're doing well. He goes, why would you do that? He kind of caught him by surprise. He's an unbeliever. He's, he knows that, you know, I'm not in agreement with his lifestyle or whatever. I said, no, I'm praying all the time. I hope you make tons of money. I'm praying that you just grow your funds exponentially. He goes, why would you do that? I said, because they're going to be mine someday. I said, the wealth of the wicked is laid up for the righteous, man. I can't, I, I can't pray enough for you because you're building my portfolio. Thank you very much. He never came back and shared from that point on, you know. So, but we had an understanding. So praise God. So that's coming. That consummation's coming. Well, why can we go through all that we're going through? Have you ever thought about it? I mean, life is hard. It is hard. You live long enough, you'll be touched by the... Uh, the hurt that this world can bring to your life and the loss that can be brought to your life, it's hard. How do we make it? How do we overcome in this realization that the kingdom of God is still coming? The fullness of that is coming. That this life is like a vapor. It's here and gone in the scope of eternity. Think of this, trillions of years down the road, we're going to look back at this time of, you know, 60, 70, 80 years on the earth, and it'll just seem like it happened in a second, in a moment. It was here and gone. In the scope of eternity, it won't even matter anymore 
That's why you and I can go through whatever hardship, whatever trial, whatever disappointment. We can go through anything and everything because it's going to roll away and we're going to rule and reign forever and ever and ever in a new creation, a perfect creation without sin, without shame. It's going to be so worth it, right? So, so you know, this, this life is transitory. Our trials and troubles, transitory. Whatever you're going through, market, temporary. This too shall pass. So we can, we, can, we, can, we can overcome anything in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. Amazing in every way. goes on to say, And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, O Lord God, the Almighty, who are and who were, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. And the nations were enraged, and your wrath came. And the time came for the dead to be judged. Your wrath came. I want to just stop there. Your wrath came. Remember Egypt? Remember Pharaoh's land? Remember the ten plagues that God poured out, and the final one being the plague of death? That was the wrath of God poured out on Egypt. Egypt was the world empire. She becomes the prototype for what's coming in the future. See, these empires are inflamed by the beast. And he's not going to be dismissed and dispatched until the very end. Which means there's going to be other scenarios that we will face that our ancestors also faced. But keep in mind that even though we suffer for a while, God is going to pour out his wrath on a world that hates him, his son, hates his people, and has touched on his bride, you. Touched on you. God says, payback's coming. Don't touch on my bride. I love her. God loves you. God is going to vindicate you. God is going to turn every table. He's going to heal your hearts. And everything is going to be okay. Everything. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know what the future holds, but I'll tell you what, it's getting kind of scary, right? I'm getting a little bit nervous here. You know, this is uh, the final kind of bastion of liberty in the world right here. And we're losing it just at such a rate. It's, it's frightening. I don't, I don't know, but it doesn't matter because we can see the past, right? The past, as Minister Donna was talking about, the past gives us hope for the future. We can see what God's done in the past over and over and over for his people, which tells us we're going to be okay. God's going to do the same for us that he's done for our ancestors. All right. Your wrath came and the time for the dead to be judged and the time to reward your bondservants, the prophets and the saints and those who fear your name, the small and the great, and to destroy those who destroy the earth. And the temple of God, which is in heaven, was opened and the ark of his covenant appeared in his temple. And there were flashes of lightning, sounds of peals of thunder, and an earthquake, and a great hailstorm. That's apocalyptic language for all hell is breaking loose, right? God is going to pour out his wrath. He's going to judge the living and the dead. And you and I are going to be vindicated and receive rewards. And that's going to kick off the glorious phase of the kingdom. That's the glorious phase. We're not in that phase yet. You know, in case you're wondering, uh, but it's coming, so get ready. So, once his commission is fulfilled, once Yeshua's commission, what he was called to do, commissioned to do, once it's fulfilled, he's going to give the kingdom of God back 
to his father. Interesting. Let's read this. 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 27. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, and by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits. After that, those who are Christ's at his coming. Verse 24. Then comes the end. Then comes the end. When he hands over the kingdom of God, I'm sorry, when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule, all authority, and all power. So Jesus has a number of things that he's going to accomplish. He was given the kingdom in his ascension. He's ruling and reigning. He will continue to rule and reign until he has abolished all wickedness, all the rule and authority of this world. And then the end will come. At that point, he's going to hand the kingdom of God back to the Father. In the meantime, he's the one that's ruling and reigning, and then he will give it back. Verse 25. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. So he's going to rule and reign until he strips this world of its rule and reign, its wicked rule and reign. And he's going to make all his enemies a footstool. And when he accomplishes that, then the end will come. And it's at that point when everything is reconciled that he'll give back to his father his kingdom. Verse 26, the last enemy that will uh, be abolished is death, for he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. Verse 28, when all things are subjected to him, then the son himself will also be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him so that God may be all in all. The Father has exalted the Son. He has given His throne to the Son. The Son has the scepter of the Father, and He has the authority of the Father to rule and reign. He is the one that every knee will bow to, and every tongue will confess. And then when it's all said and done, He's then going to turn around, give the kingdom back to the Father, and then he's going to submit himself as the Son to his Father, that God might be all in all. And by that time, everything will be accomplished and will enter into that new age to come, a new heaven and a new earth. So where are we now? Where are we now in relationship to his rule and reign? that's been happening for 2,000 years. Let's talk about inauguration and consummation. We have this picture of the kingdom being here and not yet. That the kingdom of God is already established, but still coming. It provides this tension, almost a paradox, if you will. But nonetheless, it's true. And we understand that with the language of inauguration and consummation. In other words, the kingdom of God is inaugurated already established, but not consummated. Okay, The consummation comes when he returns. So it is here in its inaugural uh, form and growing, but it's not consummated until he comes. 
we're in between. That's where we're at. We're in between the inauguration and the consummation. Now, I'm not sure where we're at in relationship to the return of Jesus, whether that's just, you know, decades away or thousands of years away. I don't know, you know, but we're somewhere in between that inauguration and consummation of the kingdom. Another way to state it is there's two phases of the kingdom of God, the redemptive phase and the triumphant phase. The redemptive phase is now. Jesus' kingdom is a spiritual kingdom, a redemptive kingdom. It will move into its socio-political triumphant phase when he comes again. So we're in between the redemptive phase and the triumphant phase. That's where we're at. Let's take a closer look at that. Let's look at the inauguration. Remember that our core passage that kicked off this Kingdom of God series is found in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 through 15. It says, Now after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God. Jesus came along preaching not his gospel. He came to preach the gospel of his Father, the gospel of God, saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the good news. The good news that the kingdom of God has finally arrived. The long-awaited kingdom of God is near. It's at the door. Listen. You can hear it knocking. So Jesus presented the, the, the inauguration, if you will, of the long-awaited kingdom of God. This was the gospel of God, the good news of God, that his rule and reign was coming to our realm. Now, in Matthew 13... 31 to 32, Jesus gives a parable concerning the kingdom to help us to understand what's going on. It says, He presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. And just real quick here, the phrase kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God is uh, interchangeable. It functions as a synonym, if you will. Uh, it's saying the same thing. Kingdom of heaven is the rule and reign of God who resides in heaven. The kingdom of God is the rule and reign of God which resides in heaven. It's, it's really the same thing. So don't be confused with that. So he says, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field. And this is smaller than all other seeds. But when it is full grown, it is larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. So, this, this world is cast, if you will, in the language of a garden. And there's lots of plants, i.e. kingdoms or governments. There's plenty of them. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed, very, very small, that the farmer sows into his garden. But that small little seed produces a plant that's larger than all the other plants combined. It overshadows all of the other plants. What that tells us is that the kingdom of God starts very, very small in this world empire, the Roman Empire, right? But by the time it's done, it's not only bigger than the Roman Empire, it's bigger than all the kingdoms of this world. You know, I don't know how many... I forgot to look. I should have looked this up. I had this stat a while back. I don't know how many uh, Christians there are in the world, but I think it's like, is it 2 billion? 
think it's 2.1 billion, 2.2 billion, yeah. That's a pretty big kingdom. When you think about that number-wise, that is a huge and growing kingdom. So, Jesus is the man, the farmer, who has sown the kingdom in the soil of this world. And it's been growing for 2,000 years. And it is absolutely exploding. It's so large. It's amazing in every way. And it's continuing to grow. Let me give you another picture. Luke chapter 13, verses 20 through 21. And again, Yeshua said, To what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three packs of flour until it was all leavened. How many bakers here? Got some bakers, got a few bakers. Most of us are not. We're eaters. But it's amazing to see what happens to dough. Once you add leaven, it absolutely permeates all of the dough. In fact, it grows exponentially. And the dough rises and it just gets like, it just, it, you know, something's growing in there, right? That's the leaven. Leaven's a bacteria, by the way. And so uh, that's what causes the, the growth is it's multiplying exponentially. Jesus says, that's my kingdom. It's going to explode with growth. People are going to rush into it. And the number is going to climb and climb and climb until it's bigger than all the other kingdoms. The kingdom of God is here. It's been here for 2,000 years, and it's growing. Those who have eyes to see can see it. Let me shift gears now and talk about the kingdom being inseparable from the king. The king and the kingdom cannot be separated. They're actually one and the same. It's not just a realm. It's the rule and reign of the person over that realm. Luke 17, chapter 20. Now, having been questioned by the Pharisees as to when the kingdom of God was coming, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, Look here it is, or there it is. For behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. This is very important for us to understand. A lot of debates, a lot of ink spilled over this particular passage, but the weight of the evidence uh, in terms of scholarship is that Jesus is making the claim that he is one and the same as the kingdom. That he's not saying that the kingdom of God is in you, so to speak. He's saying it's in your midst. He was standing in their midst. He was in the middle of them. They were questioning him. And what he's saying is the kingdom of God is here now. It's me. I'm the king. And it's through me that you have entrance into the kingdom. You have access into the long-awaited rule and reign of God through me. This is what he's communicating to them. It speaks of another uh, event in which his disciples were talking to him about entrance into the kingdom. He says, no one enters except through me. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through the Son. It does not matter. 
You know, in the Messianic movement, identity issues are always a hot topic, right? Who's who, right? What's your identity? I'm, I'm, I'm of Judah. I'm of Nathaniel, or is that one of the tribes? That's awkward, huh? All right, give me the 12 tribes, okay. So everyone's trying to make these claims for ethnicity because we don't understand identity issues. Jesus says, you know, getting into the kingdom of heaven is a matter of faith, not ethnicity. It doesn't matter what ish you are. You can be Jewish. You can be Spanish. You can be Irish. You can be Scottish. The ish don't matter. Entrance into the kingdom of God is based on faith, not ethnic status. And if you do not embrace Jesus as king, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven, but perish in your sin. It doesn't matter what your ethnic identity is. It doesn't matter. We need to have our focus on covenant status, which comes through faith in Messiah. Because at the end of the day, when we stand before the Father, He's not going to ask us, what's your ethnic status? He's not going to ask if you're Jewish. He's going to ask, did you believe in His Son? Did you embrace Him as King over all? That's what's going to matter in that day. Let's talk about the metaphor of livestock as it relates to God's people. Israel, the people of God, are cast in the metaphor of sheep throughout the Tanakh. God uses that as the metaphor to really teach his people about who he is and who they are. In John chapter 10, verses 7 through 16, it says this. So Jesus said to them again, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. I'm the door of the sheep. The sheep go in and out through me, sheep being the people of God. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved. Again, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, right? Anyone who enters through me, he will be saved, and he will go in and out and find pasture. Think of the metaphor in Micah that we read a couple weeks ago concerning the shepherd, the sheep, and how he breaks out into the pasture and leads the sheep. And in that passage, he's called, he's called a king, not just a shepherd. It says the king leads them out into the pasture. Keep that in mind, because Jesus is drawing off this imagery. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. So in Micah, the shepherd is the one that opens up the rock gate and lets the sheep out into the pasture. But it says he goes before them as their king, as the sheep come out to the pasture. He leads them into the pasture. Of course, this is a, this is a metaphor and has been understood as the kingdom of God. That is the king who leads his people into the kingdom. And Yeshua is that shepherd. He is that king. He is the one that leads us into the kingdom. There is no entrance into the rule and reign of God, the compassionate rule and reign, the redemptive rule and reign of God, except through the king, King Jesus. He goes on to say, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd 
who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and is not concerned about the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me. Even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Verse 16, I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also. They will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. Let's leave that up for a moment. I have other sheep. I have other sheep. If the sheep have already been cast as the 12 tribes of Israel throughout the Tanakh, and they are as the sheepfold of God, Israel is the sheepfold of God, what does it mean that I have other sheep that are not of this fold? I have other sheep outside of Israel. What's that in reference to? That's in reference to the nations. That's not talking about the 10 lost tribes of Israel. No, they're already the fold. You can read that throughout the Tanakh. Jesus must be referencing the nations. Because what was promised to Abraham was not just the descendants of Jacob, but all the nations. What was promised to the Messiah was not just Israel, but all the nations. Psalm 2 says that he inherits all of the nations. His rule and reign is over everyone. So Jesus says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. This is in reference to the Gentiles. You see, believing Jews and believing Gentiles comprise the one flock of Messiah who is the one shepherd. God has given to his son, Israel. The son becomes the shepherd, just like he becomes the king. He takes care of everything on behalf of his father, and then at the end of the age, gives it back to his father. Yeah, Messianic Jews, believing Jews, Messianic Gentiles, believers among the nations, we are one in him. One flock, one Israel, with one shepherd over us, the Messiah, King of kings and Lord of lords. And notice what he says, Luke chapter 12. Here's the big sizzle for today. I love this. Luke 12, 32. Do not be afraid. In my younger days, that would have been over for him. All right, so... Luke 12, 32. I hate winter flies. They're big, they're bold, but they're slow. And I missed him, but I ramble. Okay. That was like, fly from hell. Here's my big passage. Okay, back on track here. Luke 12, 32. Yeshua speaking. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. Think about that. Jesus is receiving the kingdom, power, glory, authority of the father, and he's already saying, I'm going to give it to you. To rule and reign with Christ implies that we're going to participate with him, ruling and reigning 
in his kingdom that he would give to his followers, believing Jews and believing Gentiles, the keys to the kingdom is shocking. Little flock, what does that mean? Well, there's one flock, not two. So how do we understand little flock? It must be referring to a flock within a flock. The little flock is a smaller flock within the larger, greater flock. It's an Israel within Israel. It's believing Israel in the midst of unbelieving Israel. And unbelieving Israel is much larger. So this is a portion of the greater flock. It's analogous to what the Tanakh calls the remnant of Israel. Let me give you one passage. Isaiah 10, 20 through 22. Now in that day, the remnant of Israel, the remnant being that smaller portion of faithful Israel, Israel as a whole was unfaithful, disobedient, rebellious, over and over and over. But in every generation, there was this smaller group in Israel who stayed faithful to the Lord. This is called the remnant of Israel. It says, Now in that day, the remnant of Israel and those of the house of Jacob who have escaped will never again rely on the one who struck them, but will truly rely on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. Verse 21. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. For though your people, O Israel, may be like the sand of the sea, only a remnant within them will return. This is what Paul speaks of in Romans, where he says, only a remnant shall be saved. Of course, he's drawn off uh, the Septuagint rather than the uh, Hebrew Tanakh. But basically, it's saying the same thing. Only a remnant's going to return. Only a remnant's going to be saved. And that remnant is the flock within the flock, the Israel within Israel. It's the Israel of God. It's believing Israel, of whom we're grafted into. The nations who believe in Jesus are grafted into that Israel of God. So in summary, the little flock are the Jewish believers who are following Jesus, as well as the Gentile believers who are added to their numbers through faith in Jesus. This is what Revelation speaks of in chapter 14 and verse 12. Here's the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. That's the little flock. Always has been, always will be. Messianic Jews, Messianic Gentiles comprise the little flock of God, the remnant of Israel and the recipients of the kingdom, its power, its glory, for the recipients. So we're in this redemptive phase. The kingdom is not just a realm, it is the rule and reign of God, which offers salvation and blessing to all who embrace Jesus as Savior and King. Through faith in Jesus, one enters into the realm of God's rule and reign now. When we accept Christ as our Lord and Savior, as King and Savior, we enter into that kingdom. We come under the rule and reign of God. We begin to experience the compassion and love of God who forgives us of our sins, 
refuses to remember them anymore. As far as the east is from the west, it says he remembers them no more. In fact, it says he doesn't even take into account our sin anymore. Who doesn't want to be a part of that kingdom? A kingdom of love and mercy and forgiveness of new beginnings. This is the rule and reign of God coming to us through Yeshua, our Messiah. We can experience forgiveness, healing, reconciliation, connectedness, perspective, the way God sees the world, a whole different way than what the media represents or, or gives us. We have meaning and purpose. We're also empowered and commissioned to share the good news of the gospel of God. The kingdom of God is here. We get to tell people it's near you. We get to pray for people. And when they experience the presence of God, we get to tell them, yeah, that's the kingdom of God. It's near you. Don't you want to enter that? Don't you want to be part of that realm? Because this current realm is dark confusing and bitter but there's something sweet and holy and good that's being offered to you by god you and i get to be that representative we're the salesman right we're the salesperson we get to present that and close the deal help people get into the kingdom so they can experience the good news that god loves them wants to forgive them wants to redeem them but every person will have to make that choice. Every person has to surrender to Christ as the sovereign king or perish in their sins. And at the end of the age, there's no theological test. There's no DNA test. It's a faith issue. Did you believe and embrace my son as king over everything? And that's all that's going to matter at the end. Okay, <clears throat> we're at 250. Should I finish or make this part two for next week, right? You know, I think I'm going to make this part two for next week because we, uh, we can do some question and answer time. And I always like that. So let's open it up for questions and answers. Um, <clears throat> and what I'm going to do is just uh, have someone run the mic. Minister Don, would you do that? So any questions on the, on the uh, kingdom of God um, that you might have, uh, you can ask. Make sure they relate to this message. And if there's none for this message, then I'll just let you talk about Mark of the Beast or whatever you want to talk about. It's always the Mark of the Beast, right? But let's go with some questions and we'll see where we end up. <clears throat> How does the 144,000 uh, refer to the If remnant? you become a member of the Jehovah Witnesses, you can be part of the 144,000. Okay, so the 144,000 is a group of people that we find in the book of Revelation. And if you uh, keep in mind that that's apocalyptic literature, it's filled with symbol and, and types and shadows, figures of speech. Once you understand that uh, form of literature that we have, and, and, and you know, then you can interpret that in a way that makes sense. So the 144,000 just speaks, speaks of completeness. There's 12 tribes of Israel, right? So if you do the, the math, you end up with 144,000. And uh, what that says is basically this, all Israel shall be saved. 
It's a completion of the promises made to Israel. And so it represents Israel being saved. Of course, there's another number of people that no one can even count that are also included in that redemption that we find in the book of Revelation. That represents all the nations that were called and came in to the fullness of that calling. And so it represents uh, the fullness of God's salvation being completed both among Jewish people and the nations. So there you go. Because if it's an actual literal number, man, yeah, that would be sad. Okay. I do not want to hear any reference to the book of Enoch, all right? Thank you, Ms. Tom. Okay, go ahead. So I was watching the show Mankind, Story of Us, and it was talking about how the first recorded battle of mankind, I think it was the Egyptians, was at Har-Megiddo. What could that mean? What does that mean? Is there anything to that? Next question. <laughs> you know what? I'm going to have to get back to you on that because that was not part of my teaching today. And so I'm just not even prepared for that. So uh, thank you, Eric. You're just like, man, I'm like your forerunner. You're like ahead of me. So, but I'll try to get back to you on that. All right, next one. Anyone else? Question. On the kingdom of God, rule and reign of God, redemptive phase, glorious phase, any of that kind of stuff. Back here. Good question, Eric. Man, I can't quit thinking about that now. Where? Uh, You referred to Messianic Jewish people and Messianic Gentile? Yes. I don't understand, because I always thought it was Messianic Jewish. Right, so, so the term, uh, so we have this phenomenon um, that we call the Messianic Jewish movement. And basically it started pretty much, um, well, let's say this. It really broke out in the 70s in a really dramatic way. The Jesus people moving from California, a lot of Jews got saved. And Jewish believers started saying, you know what, I don't want to have to give up my Jewishness just because I believe in Jesus. And they discovered they didn't have to. And so they began to form synagogues or congregations uh, where they, as believers in Jesus, could celebrate their faith in a Jewish context. That's called the Messianic Jewish movement. And so the term Messianic comes from the Hebrew word Mashiach. It just means of Messiah or in Messiah. So a Messianic Jew is a Jew who is in Messiah, a Jew who believes in the Messiah, Yeshua. If he believes, or he or she believes in the Messiah, that's what we would call a Messianic Jew, a believing Jew. So if that's true for the Jew, what happens to the Gentile who believes in Messiah? He too is of Messiah, but he's not a Messianic Jew because he comes from the nations. So we would call him or her a Messianic Gentile. So a Messianic Gentile is a, is a person who believes in Jesus who does not have any connection physically with any of the 12 tribes of Israel. So Messianic Jews are believing Jews. Messianic Gentiles are believers from among the nations who are grafted into the Israel of God. The Israel of God being primarily Jewish initially 
and then the Gentiles come in and join her as part of the Israel of God, to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. Does that kind of answer your question? Okay, thank you. Great question, by the way. All right, anyone else? Anyone else? Going, going, going. Good, we have one. Hi, hello. Anthony, how you doing? Doing well, doing well. Welcome, Anthony. He moved here and is coming here. We're just so excited. Also, Jake, this is your first time. Thank you for coming. Yes. Uh, Thank you for that. No questions about the Frisco Kid. (laughs) Solid, solid movie. Highly recommend it. Thank you. Um, Okay, so my question is, if we don't know if we have any biological ties to the Jewish nations, should we be calling ourselves Messianic Jew or should we just say Messianic Gentile? Gosh, that's such a great question. It it dovetails with what she asked as well. It's a big, big uh, topic and everyone's clamoring for it, right? Everyone's clamoring for it. Everyone wants to be Jewish. It's funny, the Jewish people want to hide their Jewishness. They're smart. They've been persecuted. In, in every generation, right? So they're like, they're laying low and here's all these Gentiles. I'm Jewish, I'm Jewish. It's like, wow, yeah, sign me up. So that's a big issue. So how do we, how do, how do we define Jewishness? Very, very complicated. Now, I believe every people group gets to determine for themselves their own ethnic definitions for a variety of purposes, including... Um, immigration, like when you think of Israel, right? So Israel, as a Jewish nation, they get to determine the term Jewish. They get to define that. They're the people group. The Gentiles don't get to define that. They get to define that. And they define that based on the ethnicity of your mother or grandmother, okay? So if your mother was Jewish or your grandmother was Jewish, that would make you Jewish, If your grandfather was Jewish or your father was Jewish, you're not Jewish. You're not Jewish. Now, you do have Jewish ancestry through your father or grandfather, but not enough to qualify as a Jew. You can redeem that by going through a rabbinic conversion, and in that conversion, you can now claim Jewish identity. But if your mother isn't Jewish or grandmother isn't Jewish, You cannot call yourself a Jew according to Jewish law, okay? Now, you might say, well, I have some ancestry. I did my 23andMe, right? I got this Jewish ancestry part of my background. I want to redeem that. You can go through a rabbinic conversion. I don't recommend that at all because rabbinic conversions are designed to find out if you believe in Jesus. That's one That's one part of a rabbinic conversion is this Jesus factor. You have to deny Jesus. If you have faith in him, you have to cut that loose and deny him in order to be Jewish. I always strongly discourage those types of conversions in order to redeem any Jewish ancestry that you may have. So again... Ethnicities are important, but not in regards to salvation. They are important, 
not in regards to salvation. So what I'd like to do is I like to say, look, if you're Jewish by way of your mother or grandmother, celebrate that. If you don't have that, but your dad is Jewish or grandpa is Jewish, well, you can still celebrate your Jewish ancestry without saying you're Jewish. And you can even redeem that if you can find a way to go through a conversion without denying Jesus. I could tell you so many stories. I've been in this movement for 40 years. I could tell you stories. There was a rabbi that was here in Denver, and he uh, was doing conversions for Messianics so that they could, be cut, they could redeem their Jewish ancestry without denying Jesus. He did the don't ask, don't tell policy. But his conversions were like twice as much. You paid out the nose to get your conversion papers. So I know all these Messianics, I know all these Messianics that were getting these conversions through this particular rabbi until the rabbi got busted. And then Israel said, we're not, we're not going to consider any of his conversions as being authentic. And so all of a sudden, all these people that got their Jewish status now are like, what? I paid twice as much and you're not going to recognize it? It was a big, you know, it was a big mess. A Bali gone, if you're Jewish. Big mess. So I would say it's very complicated, and each person has to kind of sort that on their own. Um, I kind of, you know, um, I kind of say I'm a proponent of Jewish law and letting the Jews determine for themselves who's Jewish, and if they say you're not Jewish, I will, you know. Now, now they are, they're going to recognize this. If you're Jewish and you believe in Jesus, you're not going to lose your Jewish status. Okay, now, if you lied in your conversion and hid the fact that you believed in Jesus, that might be a problem. But if you're, if you're, if you're Jewish and you accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you're not going to lose your status either. So it's, it's super complicated. I don't know, did it even answer your question or is it just like more confusing now than ever? It's way more confusing. Okay, so, um, so the way I like to answer is this. If someone says, are you Jewish? I always say, not according to Jewish law. If they say, well, what are you saying then? Are you saying that you're kind of Jewish? You know, you can say, well, I'm the ish part of that. I'm Jew, well, ish. I have some ancestry, but I would not claim to be a Jew. If my mother was Jewish or my father was Jewish, I would certainly claim that. I mean, my mother or grandmother. Um, but if it was my father or my grandfather, I would probably still say, no, I'm not actually Jewish according to Jewish law. But then I would always shift gears on that and say, you know what? Um, that ethnic status in the end doesn't matter. What do, you, what do you say about Yeshua? Where are you at with Yeshua? Because that's really where the talk ultimately is, is going to go. So, yeah, identity issues are very complicated in Messianic Judaism, the Judaism of Messiah. Um, I do want to say one more thing if I can get away with it, um, but I'm out of time, so I better just, I'll, I'll save that for next week. So uh, Shabbat Shalom, everyone. Love you. Hope your week is a great week. Be filled with the Spirit of God. Share Yeshua with everyone around you. Hallelujah.